0: Subloads of pain and welcome to the right side of the pond. It is Friday and we are back in 1995 and we are bringing you Survivor Series 1995. Um, Now, Survivor Series is uh, a pay-per-view which has had a a sort of checkered history, certainly one that I've always been a a big fan of. Um, But, I mean, this one very much does feel like a show where the main event which isn't a survivor series match dominates it and most of the survivor series matches themselves aren't massively memorable
1: Uh, I would agree entirely I mean I haven't had an opportunity to watch the show back before we've recorded and I don't have any notes about it so i very much am going on memory and my memory isn't that great of it Um, and I'm just looking at the card at the minute and a lot of the survivor series matches kind of fade into the ether a little bit. I mean, it's... Uh, new Gen, when it comes to the Big Four, New Gen was always very, very good at the Royal Rumble. Um, and it was always pretty damn reliable when it came to SummerSlam. Uh, uh, it's WrestleMania. There are a lot of missed opportunities there. Uh, but Survivor Series feels like the weakest of its of its kind of record on, on the Big Four. Um, and I think a large part of that is because it was really when they started to, I mean, the first, the, the the first couple of Survivor series in the, in the late eighties were obviously done for a very specific purpose. And you can tell that, you know, and they, and they have a lot of um, purpose and a kind of a sense of, of uh, robust uh, meaning to them as, as events. And then as it goes on, sort of in its first decade, it it really does start to feel less and less essential. I don't want to say important, but I'll say essential to the wider storylines and kind of became a bit of a holding show where they would sort of just get get into a bit of a holding pattern, um, at least for the undercard. And I think that plays very, very much into uh, the 95 Survivor Series. And yet, at the same time, it is a very, very important show because of that main event.
0: I think something like Survivor Series does tends to um, expose weaknesses in your roster um, more than other gimmicks, simply because, you know, if you're going to do it faithfully, which they certainly did in the 90s, like, so, like, what, what Attitude did a lot was actually almost abandoned the Survivor Series matches entirely. Like, 98, they did Deadly Game. Uh, which obviously was a tournament, so there weren't any Survivor Series matches. You know, uh, 99, there was like one or two. 2000, there was like one or two. Um, 2001, there was one big one at the end, but the rest of it was normal matches. So it's very much something which challenged them, given what we said about the Rumble in 95 and what they had to do there. In order to kind of, you know, patch up uh, the active roster they had. Obviously, well-publicized financial difficulties they couldn't afford um, a massive roster they kind of tended to go about it by having a very good top end and supplementing that with sort of up-and-coming guys so i mean if you look at the uh you know the curtain jerker you know the body donners um team you know they had in that team dr tom pritchard and rad radford alongside the more established one two three kid and skip you know um, <laughs> and then the and then the underdogs had Barry horrible wits, uh, as as King always called him. Um, Bob Holly, you know, it's like you're not ta- you're not talk about the lumi- luminaries of the of the wrestling world here. Um, also, how bizarre is it that the Undertaker would pick a team of Savio Vega, <laughs> Henry O Godwin, and Batu? Batu. Like, how likely a team is that for the Undertaker? <laughs> like, oh, hang on, I'm gonna call my team the Dark Side. I'm gonna find side. a hog farmer <laughs> Some Caribbean guy that raises says he's the hardest guy in the Caribbean. Oh dear. And a Samoan. Uh very I odd. I mean I've
1: I've I've always found the idea of The Undertaker as a team captain at Survivor Series odd. Like I would I could <laughs> understand him like getting embroiled in someone else's issues as being a member on a Survivor Series team, but the idea of him leading one is very, very peculiar, especially this version of the Undertaker, where he's still very much in kind of, you know, although that humanization process is going on, he's still at this point very much kind of a bit zombified and a bit kind of uh, uh, detached from reality. So it's, uh, yeah, it's it's very odd. I mean, the that curtain jerker, probably worth saying, it does end with one, two, three, kid versus Marty Janetti. Absolutely. Um, so it's uh it's as if mav booked it um and certainly you know the roster feels like hipster heaven in, in, in a lot of ways or even a hipster dystopia e- e- even i'm not going to come out like slinging <laughs> for <from> rad <laughs> radford <laughs> um but yeah you're right i mean 90 one of the one of the um kind of reasons often given for the criticism of Night Five is the idea that it was a wafer thin roster and we kind of talked a little bit about that when we covered the royal rumble at the beginning of this series. And it's interesting that here you have the other one of the big four that often requires, you know, just a large head count just in order to present the, the core concept. Uh, And you have, like you say, Rad Radford and, and Barry Horowitz and skip, but it's worth saying that skip and Barry Horowitz were in the midst of a feud and they were, they were in their own right. Um, you know, fully presented, um, I'm not going to say well-rounded because they weren't, but they were, you know, they were they were notable characters. Hikushi had a relationship with Horowitz at this point as being, you know, Americanized and stuff. So even when you have that 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 list, you still have um, individual character arcs going on in a way that we would long to see today. Um, and then the. The one, two, three kid at this point now is fully immersed in his heel turn. He's now with Ted DiBiase, the million dollar man. He's sold out to the million dollar corporation, um, which has sort of had its day at this point. And the one, two, three kid is kind of like the last breath of it. Well, I suppose Ringmaster would be the very last breath of it. But um, seducing the one, two, three kid to join it is perhaps DiBiase's final coup. Um among the, the the roster outside of introducing Ringmaster um, a month or so later. So, um, you know, even when you have a match like that, that probably warrants uh, being mocked a little bit because of how impressive it looks on paper, you still, and this is something we've banged on about this entire series. It's one reason why we've done it. Um, you know, it's still, there's still stuff going on under the surface that makes it engaging to people who have been watching week to week on Raw or Superstars. Uh, that that allows there to be some sense of payoff and some sense of merit to it. If this was today, you'd get a match like this that would be full of, you know, the sort of pre-show jobbers uh, and there'd be nothing to it. It would just be a bunch of unused pre-show jobbers here. At least you have a bunch of lower card guys who in amongst them, there are still individual character
0: arcs happening. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I, I think skip was a great hand and, um, you know, again, another victim of the click. So, you know so the old backstage rumors go um yeah i think like i've i've always been a big advocate for survivor series like i've always wanted it to be as traditional as possible um and you know i i haven't watched this year's this year's version i i don't know when i'll get around to doing that you know at some point no doubt uh but i've always kind of enjoyed the idea of it being related to the storylines now i know that they, they they land on this kind of brand v brand version of it to try and make it to try and make it relevant and that's that's you know worked really well in 2017 for example um but was that 2016 yeah. yeah 16 um and that, that works really well on occasion but actually you know I, I think those matches which have got a powerful sense of stakes because of the storylines you know like the invasion uh, like the retiring austin thing like the uh, become gm of raw thing like those sorts of things are what i really like with survivor series and you you know although as you say you've got individual character arcs going on you don't have all that much sort of stakes beneath that like it's the reason why i i, I love as you, as do you uh, the ultimate survivor match at the end of survivor Series mm-hmm. 1990 because it it makes it there be a point to being the sole survivor or the, you know, one of the survivors of your team.
1: And, you know, how, how well would, I mean, we've, we've talked in the, in the recent past on the show and privately as well. um, You know, the fact that they never take positive lessons from their history, like that ultimate survivor match. Would have played brilliantly into the idea of introducing the two NXT brands into Survivor Series. You know, you have NXT versus NXT UK, Raw versus SmackDown, the two teams, you know, the survivors of the two teams or whatever. There's all sorts you could do with it. And, it, you know, and that concept works I think 1990, you may feel slightly differently to this because I think you've got a a little bit more love for those early versions than I do, but I think my opinion is 1990 is the first good Survivor Series. Doc's probably spinning in his chair listening to that, but um, it's true, and I think that it finds a new purpose with the Ultimate Survivor match. And to your point, I think Survivor Series, as as a format, as a genre, works best when there are stakes because the entire format is based on a very... Uh, present sense and immediate sense of cause and effect of consequence to your action. You know, the whole idea of surviving the excitement of it is how the odds constantly shift. You know, suddenly you're down three to one. It feels like it's impossible. That's where you get the drama of, uh, of Sean and team Austin versus team Bischoff, or indeed Ziegler in, in the, the authority match from 2014. Uh, it's where you get most of the narrative tension of that amazing 2016 men's Survivor Series match and you look at that 2016 men's one which I think is a masterpiece and you think as good as it is with just sort of the whole brand extension if that had been for something more tangible or resulted from a series of interwoven uh, narrative arcs it would have been even better than it was um, so in some ways Survivor Series and, and in some ways the what we're talking about uh, the absence of it from Survivor Series 95 are, are, are a great demonstration of what's lacking from a product. Um, or, you know, it's, it's, it feels like it's a good barometer because we've said, you know, this first match, it's got a lot of kind of jobs in there. There are some narrative arcs, but it lacks tangible stakes. Survivor series of today really lack any tangible stakes at all. Uh, Cause the brand versus brand thing is, 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 is you sort of go along with it, but it's not exactly the most believable thing in the world. When someone's been on raw for three months and they're buying to prove so passionately a superior brand but um uh and and survivor series of today demonstrate quite clearly what's lacking from the wider product so i've never really thought about it but i'm kind of talking myself into and listed to you believing more and more that maybe survivor series is like the perfect barometer event to show what's
0: lacking uh, most presciently from from the product that's that's a really interesting way to put it actually i like i like that idea of the barometer. Um... I think, you know, to kind of pick up that, uh, that kind of discussion um, about today's product, I think the problem they've always had with this brand versus brand thing um, is that in the old Smackdown versus Raw video games, you know, you were trying to um, make more money than the other brands and more fans yeah. and all that sort of stuff. And the problem is, is that they've always essentially ran those two brands as being basically identical but with a different gm and i know they've had like you know various um sort of design things to do with the set and stuff that makes them look different and different commentators and different referees and sometimes um you know they've done stuff like put the cruisers on one show the women on the other show and stuff like that but ultimately there's no sense in which they're trying to out-compete each other Mm. um aside from the odd yeah the odd time you know the whole goldberg has a ticket for lesnar's match with eddie and he spears you know lesnar during the match when costing a title and all the rest of it like but they they did stuff with it now and again but a lot of the time they just uh, you know leave it for a whole year and then unless they get really lucky like with a becky lynch catching fire um you're not you're not likely to really get anybody to invest in that you know they can do cool stuff like new day be the shield um but that was interesting because it was new day be the shield not because they were on different brands indeed so yeah it's they just got they just got to kind of think about if you're going to have a brand extension that you need to envisage it as being different companies but then you've got the fact that in this day and age everyone knows very well they're both WWE companies and they're both trying to do the same thing so you need to think so carefully at the kayfabe for it to be able to work properly, which is why I'd be interested to see what they do with this NXT versus NXT UK Worlds Collide thing around the Rumble, because that is an opportunity to do that properly. So it be interesting to see if they manage it. Um, well, I have absolutely no confidence that they ever will. <laughs> Okay, so that, it, 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 <laughs> interesting discussion. Anyway, um, so they've also got uh, a women's Survivor Series match here, and of course, it's not too long before Elunja um, uh, Blaze will be off to WCW to drop uh, the women's title in a bin, um, and uh, which would of course, for, you know, like lead to Vince uh, not even having women's wrestling in his company until you know, end of ninety seven. 2014. Yeah. Well, yeah. End of 97, technically, but, uh, but also, you know, correct. Um, So yeah, it's, it's it's obviously your usual mix of kind of mostly Japanese wrestlers uh, alongside Alondra Blaze, because of course, really there weren't, I guess there weren't many contemporary female American wrestlers that, that, that were kind of, in Alundra Blaze's league at the time? I have watched through, ev- and
1: this is literal, I've watched through every single episode of Monday Night Raw from the first one in 93 all the way through to January of 97, uh, including every new gen pay per view, probably more than once every new gen pay per view. Uh, and uh, Alundra Blaze is the only female competitor who appears regularly on that show. Um, obviously, Bertha Faye at one point is like her primary adversary, and at one point, um, uh, I've forgotten a bloody name. The
0: one with the spiky hair. Oh, uh Age of Kong. Is that Age of Kong? No, no. Oh God.
1: Anyway, you know which one I mean. You know which which competitor I mean. Um, she has like two primary. Name- there you go, Bull Nakano. Thank you, Mav. Um, <laughs> yeah, and and those are the only three really that appear in any kind of prominence. So it's it's uh, it's a very very odd. Um, odd situation with that women's championship um, at this at this time. It's not really a, a, a primary feature. It's barely a feature on, on most of their sort of most prominent programming. But uh, often when they have appeared, um, you know, Alundra Blaze has a number of fantastic matches under her belt, Jara
0: and Eugen. This isn't really one of them. No, I think it's it's not unlike, in many ways, i think it's probably it's 88 or 89 but they have on one of those survivor series they have a, a, a women's match um which plays out pretty similar to this one you know again they only get 10 minutes there's not really time for them to do much um and like as with the other one it's like because they're mostly shipping in these these wrestlers from other promotions it, it doesn't really feel like you, you've got a sense of attachment to them um, I probably yeah. would also have in the '97 Rumble, of course, when they brought in all the uh, the random Mexicans.
1: Indeed, yeah. It it kind of once you have a new general product without any of that underlying, you know, arc or or storytelling, then you start to get something that feels very watered down. I think.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, so we get another outing for Goldust uh, against Bam Bam Bigelow, <coughs> uh, which. You know, obviously, they're kind of building him up by uh, first, you know, he's he's had Marty Gennetti, now he's had Bam Bam Bigelow. And I guess Bam Bam had been kind of, you know, on on the downward slope. He obviously lost that enhancement match to Bulldog um, in your house three. But even so, it's a pretty big scalp.
1: Pretty big scalp and a pretty convincing win for him as well, if I remember it rightly. I think Goldust um, has the majority advantage during it. Um, and certainly, Bigelow is kind of, as you uh, sort of saying, you know, he's he's on his way out essentially. Um, so it makes sense that you would have a new, a new character like Goldust coming along to to beat him in convincing fashion. And interesting that it's a similar spot on the card that he had at the first at the In Your House we looked at last week, where he wrestled Marty Giannetti So you get the sense of gradual introduction. And while these aren't squash matches. Uh, they are pretty robust and pretty convincing victories for gold dust. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's a kind of a very old fashioned way to, to be introducing him and it works, you know, I mean, he comes off as a, as a pretty big new threat on the roster and it's not longer close till he's chasing Razor Ramon for the intercontinental championship. Um, so yeah, I mean it's it's again like like I was saying last week, still feels like very much a character that's developing, um, and and kind of settling on a on a on a final form as it were. Uh, but uh, it's still, I mean it's it's also a match I think that that probably drives home because Bam Bam was a big guy, obviously, uh, and I think that, that people often forget that Goldust's a pretty big dude in his own right. You know, Dustin Rhodes is not a small small performer um and particularly at this point in his career so i think it drives home um how much of a heavyweight he was as well
0: yeah it's 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 just a i guess a time-honored wrestling tradition isn't it like you know um a guy sort of uh, putting people out before he goes out the door um it's, um, it's
1: it's it's exactly the kind of match that they should have had Tyler Breeze wrestle against Dolph Ziggler that year when they first introduced Tyler Breeze to the main roster. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was 2015, I think it was, in fact. Um, and in fact, it's exactly the kind of spot on a card that a performer like Tyler Breeze
0: excels. No, indeed, indeed. I mean, I think, you know, well, I mean, Tyler Breeze, the missed opportunities there, missed opportunities with Ziggler, Breeze, like, the thing is, you look at Goldust here, right? He's a character that they've decided to invest in, and they don't have any backward steps with him. You know, they invest in him and they keep investing in him as their top mid card heel all the way uh, until the beginning of '97. Um, so it's just that commitment, really, to to a character. Whereas this sort of, I mean, I, I think again of heels like that we've seen recently. You know, people like Baron Corbin who have just uh, been kind of messed about with all up and down the card, um, have never settled on a final character form, and they wonder why people reject them. I mean, it's obvious Fine. why they reject them, you know? Um, all they really needed to do with someone like Corbin was just basically have him be exactly what he was in NXT. He was just like a big asshole, really. Like, you know, nobody liked him. Fine. <laughs> that works. <laughs> like, you know... Go guy off the street, as I remember you used to describe him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it, it is, you know, he is basically a guy that's rude to you in a bus queue. That's what I was thinking about. about, about <laughs>
1: <Corbin>. <laughs> now there's a gimmick. <laughs> I'm sure there's that... a, a new gen gimmick for you. Yeah,
0: well, if 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 they uh, end up with that one, I'm going to be suing them.
1: Man, queue. <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a quintessentially British gimmick, that isn't it? Man is rude to others in queues. <laughs> Just have him hang around at the box office before the events start being rude to fans.
0: I mean, you're talking me into it. <laughs> um, but yeah, it is, it is a pretty straightforward. I, mean, I hesitate to say squash was by Bigelow, but it's certainly only eight minutes long, so it's not a, a match which kind of has much time to build to anything in particular.
1: Not quite a squash, but like I say, a pretty convincing performance and a convincing win for Goldust, and one that's designed to. Um, be
0: a showcase for him. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and so it should be, like, like we said, when they're introducing somebody new. Well, uh, indeed. Um, okay, so we're, uh, like the aforementioned match involving uh, the dark side uh, <laughs> against uh, the Royals, which is, of course, um, Hunter Hearst Helms' team. And he picked Isaac Yankum, because obviously every king needs a dentist or something. <laughs> um uh jerry lawler uh and king may oh i get it they're all royals ah ha, ha. clue is in the name of no no i was just kind of thinking like <laughs> obviously they're all you know posh and annoying and stuff but but yeah so um apart from isaac yankamu who's just a king's dentist yeah quite so a bit odd in the sense that. You know, Isaac Yankum, so The
1: Undertaker versus a dentist.
0: I mean, well, also Undertaker be Kane, like, you know, All quite, yeah. <laughs> two years before it really happened. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's odd in the sense that Lorna and Isaac Yankum were sort of like, you know, had this thing with Brett and now they kind of made common cause with Hunter Hearst Helmsley over the Fatou and the Godwin thing and King Mabel's just there because, of course, having lost to Diesel at Son Son, he doesn't really have much else to do. It's all a bit thrown together, isn't it?
1: It does feel a little bit that way. Um, I think what helps with New Gen is when they do do these thrown-together things, uh, because you have an established relationship between Jerry Lawler and Isaac Yankum from a preceding uh, storyline, it's easier to accept them on a, on a randomly-themed team like this. Um or at least it feels less unsatisfying, I'm not going to say more satisfying, but less unsatisfying than it might do today. And that I think is important because I I appreciate I'm sounding like an apologist, but I think it's an important point to make because as we keep banging on, we have done on this show we did last week, we've done so through all of these shows because new gem was so good at maintaining a synergy at the foundational level between its, its cast of characters And because it was so good at at constantly revisiting a sense of shared universe, constantly making sure that everything felt like it was existing in the same space where characters moved quite seamlessly from one storyline to the next in a manner that made for a very logically progressing character arc that felt so tight knit by the end of the year, you'd think it would all been pre-planned in 93. Um, Because of that, it creates an environment in which, when they do have to um, put together something that feels a little bit kind of leftovers, um, it naturally still has some. Sem- it's what I was saying about the curtain joker on this on this show. It still has something in there to gain to derive satisfaction. From and in and in this case you have a, an established relationship between Jerry Lawler and Isaac Yankem so it's kind of fun seeing them bump into you know the newly introduced Hunter Hearst Helmsley after having only had sort of vague interactions with him it's fun to see King Mabel um, you know as, as as a massive monster kind of lend his weight no pun intended to a, to someone else's cause and how that's now sort of encountering. Uh, Henry O. Godwin, who up until now has just been sort of almost quite innocently chasing Hunter Stomsley around with a slot bucket now suddenly he may have to combat this giant monster. It's cool to see The Undertaker in a situation where, you know, Jerry Lawler has to confront the dead man, uh, I think perhaps in the only time they ever did. Um, And yet at the same time has to contend with these two giant monsters on that team. So, you get these fun little interactions that wouldn't be fun if it wasn't for that that tighter knit, that sense of fundamental dna that that permeates the product and that's why that's so important and so useful and often pays such dividends because you get to an event like this that feels generally a little weaker at the core than than a lot of the other events from the same year but is propped up by uh the fact that you've built up all of this all of this goodwill ahead of time and just surrounding it and and because the product on a whole is satisfying it means when you get to weaker shows, it doesn't really leave you with as much of a foul taste in your mouth.
0: And it's maybe one of those it, one of those prime examples, and you get this in wrestling even today, really. But of of them really selling the whole event on the main event, and yeah. the undercard is truly an undercard. <laughs> whereas a, a lot of the time in wrestling, it's not really an undercard because a lot of the matches are, you know, just as significant as as the main event is it's not like in boxing where essentially a lot of the time the undercard matches are are pretty inconsequential for the large for large part more like up-and-coming guys whereas in wrestling a lot of the time um you know it it really is um you know guys that you really want to see
1: yeah yeah no absolutely it's also worth noting on this particular match as well though that um as as flimsy as it may look on paper, what they do with it is something of a t- tried and tested Survivor Series formula that they've done a few times over the years, which sees basically the Undertaker come in and just just do a clean sweep of the enemy team inside of about three minutes, and that's not an exaggeration. Like he he pretty much eliminates the entire opposing team inside of three or so minutes um, of of entering the match, so it's used really as a sort of a platform for him for The Undertaker, uh, because, of course, at the beginning of 96, by the time you get to Royal Rumble 96, you've got him facing Brett for the title. By the time you get to WrestleMania 12, he's facing Diesel. And he's just basically come off of a a summer of being sort of on the back burner a little bit and and beating notable names and uh, having a fun feud with the Million Dollar Corporation, but not being at that top tier. And so it's used as a means to establish him as a fierce competitor that goes all the way back to the themes that I'd sort of brought up when we talked about the Royal Rumble and the idea that Bret and Diesel have collectively demonstrated what kind of a competitive level you need to be at to be contending for that world title. And this is kind of The Undertaker's beginning to um, signal that that's what he wants.
0: I mean, now and again, yeah, like you said, they would always do that with The Undertaker. They would just remind you that he's The Undertaker. Um, Hmm. And Survivor Series always felt like his show because, of course, he debuted during it. um, Should have retired during it. Well, yeah, quite. So it, it's it's one of those shows where, because it was his anniversary show, it always felt like he had uh, a significant role to play in it. Oh,
1: yeah, absolutely. And it's and it's just what they did with Diesel in '94, the year before. You know, when Diesel comes in and wipes out that enemy team inside of a few minutes. So to say that that's what we're headed towards at this point, it's quite a fun way to start leading into that. There's a nice bit of symmetry there.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean. The whole the whole kind of, you know, diesel taker thing which they're building for for WrestleMania 12 is fascinating. Anyway, you know, two guys that are, you know, six foot ten or so, you know, about the same, you know, same height-ish, same weight-ish. Um, similarly pushed coming into the company, uh, one becoming a special attraction, one becoming a kind of permanent main event. So there's a, a lot of interesting stuff going on, which they wouldn't really play on so much in the sense that the Undertaker was still pretty supernatural by the time he faced Diesel, but, um, nevertheless is there for us as the audience watching. Indeed. Um, okay, so this wild card match, um, Hmm. like, on paper, it's a really good idea and one that I'm a little bit surprised they've never gone back to. Um, I don't think it'd work today. I mean,
1: essentially, you've got It's. – I've always found it very weird, and I'll be honest. I've never been a fan of it, uh, and I think the reason I've never been a fan of it – New Gen – the great thing about New Gen was it was an age where the product wasn't self-aware. Um, you know, these characters weren't operating in the manner where they realized they were characters in a fictional show like they do today. Um this is oddly self-aware though because it's all predicated on the idea and they even promote it this way. If they'd have just left it as we're going to team up people who don't like each other, fine. But they don't. They even promote it explicitly as we're going to put fan favorites with rule breakers. And and so that you've got this weird kind of blip in the middle of this era that's so committed to the fiction that suddenly just becomes very meta. Um and I think as well, when you start to boil the idea down and you, you sort of get to its core, it's really kind of just a bit of a gimmick in my mind, because it's just, you know, putting it's just a gateway to shenanigans really, is is ultimately and, and I feel like that's what you get with the match. It doesn't feel like it quite plums any real character depth, as much as it just does engage in a little bit of whimsy. That's my, I, that's my quite damning verdict, but that's
0: my general thoughts on it. Now, if I recall, um, this is essentially a bit of a rip-off of a WCW concept, right? I think. I don't. I don't know. I think they did a yearly thing. I mean, someone, someone will correct me if I'm wrong. But I think they actually did this sort of semi often. I know that TNA did this with some success uh, as well. But as you say, maybe not using that designation of all all rule breakers could be with with fan favorites because yeah, like you say, that is. Uh, a bit too obviously self-aware but saying you could be with anybody essentially it's just like they're all rumble then isn't it it's like oh strange alliances can be formed hmm. which is always one of their cliches like who knows what will happen maybe was that that you know, like think, the I rocks there think... uh, promo that time like you know Crush the undertaker, and... the undertaker and... gonna By... lick his red nipple or something
1: Oh, right. I thought you were going to talk about 2000 oh, yeah, it's If you big... can get past Crash Holly and Headbanger <laughs> Mosh, he has an opportunity to win the Royal Rumble. <laughs>
0: it's like, that's quite self-aware now you think about it. Isn't it?
1: And, it's, and it, it's the way he doesn't call him Mosh, he calls him Headbanger Mosh. There's something wonderful about that, and I don't know what it is. Um, like a video game, Headbanger Mosh. Um <laughs> I'm chuckling remembering the promo now. Um... What was I, I've I've lost my uh, I was going to say something I've lost what my train yeah, of thought. Was, like yeah. if,
0: I mean I guess like if if they just did it as yeah it could be. Oh, that's why I was going to say other. you
1: you mentioned the Royal Rumble, didn't you? There, um, and I can I can I can get that, but I think that the issue for me then is that with the Royal Rumble, because of the nature of that match, if if an alliance does form, like for example, uh, Rusev and Wyatt in twenty fifteen, it feels like you witness how it's arrived at. Um, there's a process that you get to see, you know, it's show you're working out sort of situation. Um, with this, I think they pre-announced the teams ahead of time, um, or certainly you didn't see how the teams ended up as the teams. I think Monsoon,
0: um, doesn't Monsoon draw it?
1: Well, I rem- all I remember from memory is that Monsoon says, you know, this is the whole point of this is we're going to put people who don't like each other. You know, we're going to do fan favorites and rule breakers with each other. Um, and it's done purposefully to shake things up or something. It's like I said earlier, it's all very self-aware. If it had been like, you know, interestingly enough, we come back to that idea of tangible stakes uh, and, and a sense of needing to be fought over something, because if there'd have been like a prize on the line and people had to qualify to get on either team. And then, you know, if there was a process to get to the point where you have wildcard teams, then it, I might be a bit more forgiving towards it. Um, it just, it feels like a short, it feels like they had an idea. You know, they had a cool idea. We're going to put, you know, we want two teams where no one gets along with each other. But then they didn't really seem to put any energy into thinking, how are we going to get there? Yeah. Um, and so they just said, that's what we're going to do uh, to the fans. And that's such a, a contemporary thing. That's such a 2019 thing to do that I think that maybe that's why it bothers me so much.
0: It, yeah, it, yeah. The stakes thing is 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 a good is a good uh a good way to look at it because if you win this Survivor Series match with people you don't like, what do you get out of it? Exactly. Um, uh, yeah, I just checked on the the, the background how it's made. So basically, it was another example of on Monsoon saying he's going to give the fans what they want and give them some. Give me what I want, um, <laughs> and uh, and uh, yeah, give them interesting wrestling matches. So that's how they kind of kayfabed it. But um, as you that's say, so
1: dull, and it's so it's so at odds with the era, the the character of the era. That's not what New Gen did. So it's it stands out as a bit of a black mark for me, as a bit of a blip on the radar, really. Um, and the match itself, I don't remember a great deal of the match. I remember there being plenty of shenanigans in it, um, but it doesn't substitute for New Genetics best, which was
0: always about emotional, robust, character-driven storytelling. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting as well. The, the, the survivors, uh, Michael's, obviously, who was going to get a super push into 96, uh, Ahmed Johnson, who was that, up-and-coming, baby, mid-card baby face that would be... I mean, had history fallen a little bit differently. You know, he would have been the guy, you reckon, yeah, at some point. Um, and he really fake conspired against him. And then British Bulldog, who obviously was about to uh, to get the next title shot against Brat. So, yeah, it, it, it kind of makes sense in terms of who survives. Because um, they often do that, don't they? They foreshadow who's getting a push with who survives... Uh, Survivor Series match. Also, in like '09, there was uh, a match where Miz, McIntyre, and Sheamus were the sole survivors. Oh yes, and then like all three of them got a big push coming out of that show. Um, and it was essentially designed to say like, "Oh, here are three guys, which you know, which you got to watch out for," um, which is you know a good way to do, it, I suppose. Uh, all right, so we've we've left plenty of time until that main event because it is it with a bizarre sense of symmetry. Plan uh, the the first match that we were ever recorded <laughs> talking about um, on this show. Uh, so you have to go back uh, all the way back in the time machine to uh, May of two thousand thirteen, uh, where. Uh, the audio version of, of Plans uh, 101, well, column series as it was then. It wasn't even a book at that time. Indeed. Uh, and we looked at number 101 was Brett B. Diesel in this No DQ match for the world title. And we particularly spent um, the half hour discussing it in the. sort of mould of whether it kind of led to the Attitude Era through some of the, the spots, the violent spots in the match, uh, and how it shows that really um, this edge to the product developed uh, a lot earlier than most people think it did. Um, so I know that obviously having looked at the Rumble match between them, Um, you know, that is, uh, that is the one that both of us would, would hang our hat on. Um, but I've always really liked this one as well. Like I remember we talked about it, you know, you were kind of, um, a bit cooler on it than I was. And actually having rewatched it minutes before we did that half hour podcast, I was quite brimming with excitement about it. And I still really, really like the match. I don't think it's got the, intensity or the depth of the rumble match but I still think it's pretty good
1: I think what I would say um I am cooler on it than a lot lot of people than most people in fact because I I think it's I think it's lauded as much as it is um by the the mass audience because of a lack of familiarity with the rest of the era and with the other diesel brett matches both of which are or three of which are tremendous um there's a lot to unpack about it. I guess if I was to, I mean, and I should say I do still like it. It's not that like I dislike it. I do like it a lot. Um, I think the the thing to say is, you know, with uh, sort of movie franchises, you always get that sort of a lot of the time you'll get a sequel that's a slower and more character-driven version of the first one.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: and and I guess that's how I would sort of characterize this. It's it's a little bit drier than the rumble match it's certainly a lot more deliberately paced than the rumble match uh, but you could argue that it's got a little bit more depth than the the surface level competitive aesthetic of the rumble match um and that depth leads to uh on the pot of diesel uh one of the most mind-blowingly good uh runs in the company's history quite honestly from a creative standpoint in terms of where his character goes after this um, in terms of the content you get the first Spanish table spot uh, which is a you know you think about how
0: quintessential that became to,
1: to main event matches in particular um, that's quite a moment to see the first one um, and I, from I,
0: I saw on Sunday by the way uh, I haven't watched the show but I saw on Sunday that they had fans sitting at a KFC table <laughs> we've a good lord and somebody retweeted the picture and was like i haven't watched tlc yet but i'm absolutely sure this table with fans eating kfc on will stay intact for the whole show <laughs>
1: <laughs> there you go um so uh and then from um brett's perspective you obviously get his final hard slog that last push to get back to the mountaintop which of course is something that he manages to achieve in in wonderfully um, you know, in, in perhaps the most successful iteration of playing possum that you could possibly want to see. Um, and then the match itself, you know, it's a no-holds-barred match or a no-DQ match or whichever one of the many interchanging uh, monikers they decide to give it. Um, and it has some, uh, a, cre- a real kind of creative, um, <clears throat> creative uh, spirit about it in terms of some of the stuff that they do during the match. It's very hard hitting. Uh, It's kind of a curious one to go back and rewatch because no DQ matches today have such a a pattern to them. Um, You know, you always get the kendo stick and you might get a fire extinguisher and you always get, you know, there's you're going to get It's 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 Lego wrestling. You know, you've got you're going to get the same blocks. It's just they're going to be arranged, rearranged in a slightly different pattern. Not so much here. You get them trying new ideas. You get them doing new things. Of course, the big one being the table spot at the end, which is such a wonderfully naturally done moment. Um, you know, they, they don't pick the table apart and put them on it and then do a move through it. Brett is kind of just launched from the ring apron all the way back through the table. And it's such a shocking moment. You see this great wave of, of audience members rush to the front of the to the front of the barrier to try and catch a glimpse of what's happened. It's a wonderfully visual moment. Um, so it's got a lot about it. It's I guess I probably this is one instance where I would go for the popcorn over the character depth in that I'd pick the rumble match rather than this one. Um, but it's as you said. I mean, it's interesting what you said earlier that it's that it's that this is an event that's very much all about the main event, and I think that's so true because if you think about Box office wrestling, not necessarily in terms of of the gate that it might take, but in terms of um, of how a match is presented and wrestled. Uh, you know, if you if if you almost wanted to think of box office wrestling as a genre, this feels like it would be a key example of that. It feels like it's a match that knows it's the main event, that knows it's a pay per view, that's all about this match. It's a match that's very sure of itself in terms of. The fact that it's the poster feud of the era, you know, it, it's very, it feels very aware of the fact they've had two encounters that have both been thrown out previously. And that's the kind of thing that I love, that I absolutely love. When you get that in wrestling, you've got it with Roman and Seth at Money in the Bank 2016, which I'll be talking about with Doc in a near future episode of Sports Entertainment is Dead, um, where you get such a natural... Uh, coincidence and fate of circumstance behind something. It wasn't planned out that these two would have, you know, two fiercely competitive matches under their belt um, prior to this, both of which went to a no contest, and that this would be you know, the third and final one. It just happened that way, and that's such a wonderful boon for the match, and it adds such substance and history to it. It feels like a big, marquee, era-defining match this, uh, and that's something that I think, that's why I say coupled with the style in which it's wrestled and presented that's why I would call it box office wrestling capital B capital O capital W
0: yeah no absolutely and I think Brett and Diesel felt like those two characters for that era um, because they have these three matches and conveniently you know it is three matches and it does feel like a trilogy Um, whereas you know uh, like Brett and Sean have three matches, but it's much, it's much more chaotic. Like one's all the way back in '92, yeah. This one's in '96, and then the third one. I mean, that's is his, Montreal. It's own thing all by itself. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's it's always a, it's almost a shame that you know. Well, I mean, it, not even almost. It is a shame that you know we were robbed of so many more great Brett and Sean matches. I've no doubt by <laughs> by Montreal because they would have gone on to have more. I'm sure. The other
1: thing with with Brett and Sean is if if you, you know if some of what Brett is to believe to if some of what Brett says is to be believed and you've always I think got to take what he says with a pinch of salt because you don't know how much of it is misremembered or tainted with cynicism or just bred from ego. Um, same with anyone, incidentally. But they they regardless, um, it would from the sounds of it would have always been much more of a you win one, I win one, you know, kind of a scenario sort of trading wins in the kind of way they did with like Rock and Austin or Cena and Rock. Um, What's so wonderful about and Diesel is that the first two did go to a no contest, that there was no decisive winner. And so you had a real sense of out of these two competitive equals, who is going to prove themselves to be the better man? And the fact that that's not crammed down your throat, you know, they don't lean heavily onto that. It's just kind of you know plays out in the background if you're aware and cognizant of their history with one another there's such a sense of sense of realisticness to that i think it's it's
0: so infectiously wonderful yeah no absolutely i completely agree it's like they got such different paths at the top as well like brett worked for i mean he was one of the original guys that worked through the tag division through the mid card mm-hmm. uh fought his way through smashed barriers in terms of the size that was expected of a, a WF champion. Whereas diesel is a joke in another company comes into uh, to WWF like gets this massive push out of being a bodyguard at, at, at the rumble in uh, 94. Uh, before you know it, he's world champion. He goes in through '95 as the, you know, the sort of dominant champion racking up wins, it's the longest reign uh since Hogan, blah blah blah. So they've got such different paths. And then that is the Roman and Seth dynamic as well, effectively. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, actually when you think about it. Whereas Dean and Seth is is Brett and Shaw. <laughs> they came up the same way. Absolutely, uh, yeah. Still finding shield parallels after all this time. <laughs> um but yeah, it, but it's, it's,
1: I mean, it's a pertinent, you know, not to get too sidetracked here, but we all want to go on our tangents. And, um, you know, I think we've said for a while that, that Diesel is a great historical comparator for Roman. Um, and I've always felt like I would love to see the parallel version of history where the way that the shield split went was that Roman sided with Seth to betray Dean and acted as, as Diesel to Seth's Sean for a year before getting that kind of push while Dean worked his way up in a, in a Bret Hart style fashion. um, And they sort of went about it that way. Um, I'm not saying that that would have been better than what we got or worse than what we got. I'd just be fascinated to see that parallel version of history play out because I think that they, they probably did miss a little bit of a trick by, by moving Roman away from being the muscle so quickly rather than sort of again, you know, again, looking to their past and taking a good lesson from it and understanding that actually New Gen wasn't this period that needed whitewashing and had a lot of successes, one of which was arguably the best version of the whole bodyguard trope in Diesel and Sean.
0: Yeah, in- entirely, entirely. Everything with um, with Reigns was sort of, was, was rushed or botched or... One thing with Diesel was they were remarkably... Um, confident in what they did with him. it's like, here he is, he's a bodyguard, he doesn't say anything, he just hangs around and looks menacing. Explodes out of nowhere to get this this massive performance in the rumble. Uh they kind of, you know, tease the friction, you know, between him and Sean. They kind of, you know, they have him um be the guy that that beats Batland after Batland's kind of, you know, beat Brett at a house show. And they just don't back down from it. like, And they have all this stuff at the Rumble where it's like, they're questioning, oh, is Diesel really legitimate or did he just squash an old man, you know, in, in, in Backland? And he answers the questions at the Rumble, but of course there's the inconclusive finish, so nobody's really sure. Um, and he takes on Sean and he has the match with Sean, and, you know, Sean is, again, inverted commas, the wrestler, whereas Diesel is, you know, just the big guy, and yet Diesel comes out on top. And they've had him really go up against a real variety of opponents through this. Um, but ultimately, like, Brett's the soul of the company at this point, and And it's like, it the, the belt is like, um, it's almost like magnetic. It's like Brett is true north for that company in New Gen. Love that. And, and it always comes back to him. True
1: north. That's a great way to describe Brett, I think. Uh, probably
0: the way he'd like to describe himself.
1: Well, <laughs> oh, quite. um but yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, but the, the the key difference there is when when Diesel had that performance in '94 um, at the Rumble, you know, and and kind of got red hot as a result. Of that exploded as a result. Of that they still they still went about a traditional push for him. You know, he wasn't wrestling for the world title inside of three months, at least. You know, I mean, he, pr- he probably got a world title shot, but that was how it was done back then. You know, random has got world title shots at random points, but um, you know, by WrestleMania 10, he didn't. He wasn't in an active match. He was still Sean's bodyguard in the ladder match. By SummerSlam, he was challenging for the Intercontinental Title, and while they rushed it at the back end, um, you know, it's, whether that's because they got impatient or they just wanted to to strike while the iron was hot it wasn't fumbled and, and with Reigns, there were always so many false starts and it was always, even the 2014 rumble when he was naturally popular, despite what people may want to say otherwise, um, which of course really kind of really got catalyzed with a diesel like performance at survivor series 2013, when he wiped out half the opposing team on his own. um, even in the 2014 Rumble, it still felt very obviously forced when they had him break Kane's record of eliminations, but they did it in this weird way where one of them was El Torito and another one was JBL, you know, and it was kind of all half committal, uh, you know, non-committal. Um, in the, they had this weird they. they they had I don't know if they still have it because I'm not watching, but they had this weird habit with Roman of being really non committal and hugely committal all at the same time and sort of being apologists for what they were doing in the hopes that would make it easier for fans to swallow. And anyway, I mean we could we could talk for hours about it, but Diesel was such a clear example to follow and they didn't follow it. And that's supported by this match, this Survivor Series ninety five match, because by the time you get to this, you completely accept that Diesel and Breta are on equal footing. You totally accept that they're, they're equal contemporaries and that it's going to be a competitive match. And that's where the excitement is derived from. It's not derived from the fact that it's fast paced, you know, all guns blazing, you know, 15,000 different weapon spots in there. It's brought from the fact of we're two uh, competitive equals. We've had two comp- highly competitive matches King of the Ring 94, Royal Rumble 95, both of which got thrown out. This time it can't get thrown out. It's no DQs. You know, how far are we willing to go to prove we're the better man? And, of course, what happens is, um, you know, at Royal Rumble, it was getting out of hand. The, the, the key element of that Royal Rumble match I always remind people of is the wording in which it ends, which I always feel is very specifically picked which is that the referee can no longer maintain control. It's not a DQ or anything. The ref just can't maintain control anymore, partly because of outside interference, but also partly because, you know, Brett's getting more and more aggressive and the steel chairs, getting introduced, and all kinds of stuff. Well, here, they have free reign to do what they want. Uh, And it becomes, as a result, not just a test of their competitive capability, but almost of their moral fibre, and the irony is Brett wins with the most technically sound maneuver, you know, a small package type situation. And Diesel just loses his shit after the fact. Um, and, there's, and even that's so clever. You know, they've, they've gotten so competitive now. We're in an ODQ environment. And at that point, it's one with a technical wrestling move. Like there's such a wonderful bit of storytelling in that alone. Um, just tremendous stuff.
0: Yeah, and I've always loved about Brett that, that I've said this to you before and to Doc before that he often doesn't win his biggest matches with a sharpshooter. Indeed. It's like you know um, uh, isn't it a victory role with the Okazuna? I can't remember.
1: It's uh no, he just pins him. Yoko falls off the oh, back of falls it. off the <laughs> hits his head when he falls off the turnbuckle and Brett just covers
0: him. Um, but so could just... you Im-
1: could you imagine that finish to a mania main event today and how it would go down?
0: Oh my god. Well, it could be any worse than some of the other main, mania finishes we've seen, having said that. Not quite. At least at least they didn't if it was Triple H doing it, it'd take thirty minutes to get there, wouldn't he? It? Maybe like crawling across the ring like <laughs> Stay down! <laughs> Oh, God. Uh, but, yeah, no, <laughs> I've always loved that about Brett, that he did win with roll-ups, right? You know, he did, um, you know, win with secondary finishes, you know, um, he did. And,
1: and, and to counter, sorry to interrupt cool. you, to counterbalance that as well, if he did lock a sharpshooter on, it was over in seconds. Um, and the reason why I say this is, it's really just so I can have a second to gripe again. Um, shock, horror. Uh, because I've, as I've fallen out of love with wrestling over the last few months um a, a major reason it um has been not just the kind of the surface level product but the foundation of it that the actual wrestling i feel is so far removed from good now um and brett really is is you know for me obviously has for so long been the barometer of that um and what's become clear is that as i've fallen out in primetime warned me this would happen um I've become increasingly intolerant of things that before I tolerated, like before it never bothered me that someone would be locked in a finishing submission, you know, and they draw it out for a minute for drama before someone tapped out or, or counted. And actually now it, when I watch that stuff back, it really does get on my nerves because when Brett would lock in a sharpshooter, it would be over in seconds. And of course it would be over in seconds. If this was real and you were so proficient at using a submission maneuver that it was your finishing move, um, you know, someone wouldn't be able to withstand it for, for a minute and then pass out and then come back to withstand it some more before getting a rope break. Um, and that's one of the, the examples of why I think Brett was such a, such a master of storytelling. And it sort of plays into what you were saying a second ago, Mav, because it was all about realism. You know, and it was just as, just as realistic that someone could win in a big match situation with a, a victory roll or a small package um, as it would be if they'd win with their finishing move. But it's all about context. You know, I mean, Jake, I remember Jake Roberts saying the most devastating and he said it glibly, the most devastating move in professional wrestling these days is a is a roll up because everyone seems to win their match that way. I, I think it's perfectly legitimate for someone to win a match that way. In fact, I would encourage it to happen more, but it has to be done in the right right context. And it seems in like this, in the
0: cruisers, a lot of it happens.
1: Yeah. Um, not necessarily in the most contextually appropriate way, I would venture Um That's just me in this match. I think it works so brilliantly because Brett's exhausted and it's, he's just gone through the table. Diesel's trying to get him up in the jackknife and it's almost like part desperation, part instinct that Brett goes for it. And he's just so technically proficient. Diesel can't kick out inside of three seconds. I mean, that feels like a truth we've strayed too far from, doesn't it? That ultimately all you need to do to win a match is pin someone's shoulders to the canvas for three seconds.
0: Well, this is the thing. I think with uh, the submission thing that you mentioned, y- you can almost blame um, Brett and Austin for that because, well, quite, this yeah. one occasion on which the you know, the only occasion in which somebody was in a sharpshooter for a prolonged period of time and and ironically and my favorite match ever, <laughs> yeah, and didn't lose the match. But but what that did was that they then replayed that sort of spot in a kind of minor key way over and over again until you know you get guys that brett had a hand in helping uh like the rock and people like that who started using the sharpshooter as a kind of you know tribute to brett and and also to owen who of course sadly lost his life in in 99 um and it became a transition spot so whenever the rock puts him in a sharpshooter it was just a way for somebody to you know have the sort of near fall drama of being in a submission but then eventually gets the rope or or break the holes figure fours being used as a transition move has driven me mad since <laughs> about 1994 like hambrat
1: used to do it <laughs> yeah it's, it's it's like
0: you know there's there's i mean mostly around the ring post which is fine so you, you can't technically submit from that but but yeah it's it's something which has always annoyed me when ddt started being used as a there's a whole long list of things like particularly in the attitude era where you know having grown up with Rock and wrestling, a new gen. I was seeing moves that were traditionally finishes become transition moves, and we've we've just reached the you know the logical point now where no move finishes a match.
1: Well, quite. It's de- it's a, it's it's well, it's what I said a second ago. You know, it we we've, we've become so far removed from the base concept of wrestling uh, and what it's meant to be about, which is pinning you, the other guy's shoulders to the mat for three seconds and being realistic that now it is just two guys pretending to fight and having Um, a and it's it's become a case of you know a ddt i mean it's so difficult to describe a ddt isn't a ddt anymore a ddt is just something that happens in a wrestling match it might be a headlock if that makes any any kind of sense you know we just accept that it doesn't finish a match because wrestling
0: it's it's just it's just a headlock ultimately now it's exactly the same sort of thing uh, you know, and before this gets a bit too much like, you know, old man <laughs> shouts the cloud like it. Uh, but I think you know, wrestling, my biggest problem with wrestling uh, in the past aside from part-timers uh, is people uh, I need to phrase this carefully certain fans All the best sentences start that way. Watch Shh. wrestling for the near falls not for the fall and when i watch wrestling i used to love the creativity of a finish how is the finish coming is it out of nowhere is it set up is it you know because of a mistake the other person makes is it because that someone's got an injured body part that was the drama of it for me and i say this to prime time on twitter a little while ago it's no coincidence to me that pat patterson retiring led to a massive uh depreciation in the quality of most wrestling matches, most big wrestling matches, because he was the genius. He was the finish guy. He was the, the agent that had all of that know-how and experience. And, you know, I mean, supposedly they've, hi- they've hired Lance Storm uh, recently to start doing that job. And, you know, if anyone can maybe bring some of that back, it might be him, but we'll have to see.
1: I mean, the, the, the problem is, is I don't think the contemporary audience would accept it anymore. Would accept that return to, to normalcy, for want of a better expression, because it's gone so far the other way that anything now that doesn't meet that standard, it, I mean, it riddled Dean Ambrose's WWE career. You know, how many times did we hear that he was a disappointment in the main event spot, or his, you know, his 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 matches as champion were disappointing, or or whatever. And, and the same with Seth when he's wrestled sort of slower, more uh, cerebral matches, the same thing. And yet you have, you know. Guys over in Japan um, nailing 18 finishing moves in a match and, and selling a knee for 20 minutes and then not for the last 10 at all and and people going mad about it and um, jo- I mean I I cringe when people say Johnny Gargano is is one of the best wrestlers in the world today because I would barely call him a wrestler quite frankly he's an athlete he's a hell of an athlete you know incredibly conditioned uh, you know incredibly athletic um, but in terms of the storytelling he might as well be writing a column in all caps. Um, because that's, that's the equivalent and and not just him. I don't mean to single him out. I mean, this is, this is a culture now that has become prevalent. And what I find so frustrating is that it seems to be being overseen by wrestlers that we would think would know better. Um, but instead of just allowed this culture to take root because it's the fastest avenue to the loudest reaction and loudest reaction is what counts most in the age of social media, social media metrics, um, and sadly, the art of professional wrestling has now gone so far away from what it was, which was about a, a realistic portrayal of two guys in combat to resolve an issue um, that it's just become this overblown, overdramatic theater uh, uh, that, that, that isn't even shy about being naked. I mean, you know, the number of times now, little things like you see a wrestler watching the referee count so that he can kick out at the right time. Or, I mean, I tell you what, this, this, this main event at Survivor Series 95 has at its very core the perfect example, which is the Spanish announce table spot. Uh, you know, in this match, it had never been done before. It's the decisive moment in the match. It's hugely thrilling, hugely exciting. You fast forward three years, it's done in practically every other main event. Why? Because professional wrestling. No one gets disqualified for it. Why? Well, because wrestling. You know, it just becomes an accepted note that gets struck in the chorus of a professional wrestling match. And while that hasn't bothered me for years and years and years, I think it's been a short, sharp slope to go down from sort of totally falling out of love to finding myself completely kind of irascible when it comes to these things now. One of the reasons why uh, Mustafa Ali has been such a revelation in the last couple of years is because when you go back and you watch some of his stuff on 205 Live, like when he had that tournament match with Jack Gallagher, for example, that one always sticks out to my mind because it tells a a really kind of robust story throughout. And how does the match end? He nails three big moves at the end and pins him. One One of them is his finish. I think one's like a headbutt. Uh, and one's a super kick, and it finishes the match. And that's what wrestling should be. And you compare that to something like, um, I mean, not to, to to shit all over one of your favorite wrestlers of recent years, Mav, but um, you, you think about the Andrade-Gargano match, which I was loving for the first 10 or so minutes and just got gradually more ridiculous as it went on. And you had Gargano taking knees to the ring post and, and having his head kicked in the back of, and, you know, like five or six or seven different moves, each one of which should have ended the match, just piling up and each one not just happening, but then being followed by a near fall. I mean, if it was just a successive series of these things and then a finish, I could perhaps accept it a little easier. But it's the fact that each one's then punctuated by near fall in turn to get into this frenzied, hysterical sphere of the impossible. It just makes me feel sick. I mean, it makes me feel nauseous to think about it because it just isn't believable and it feels like now i'm living in an age where i'm surrounded by a product infested by uh, you know by glorified backyard wrestlers who happen to have found their way on a national international television program frankly um but i've you know i've waded into extreme waters of, of displeasure now so to rewind back to this match survivor series 95's main event one of the reasons why it's so much fun to watch is it's a no DQ match that feels very grounded and and very much with both its feet planted in, as any Bret Hart match seemed to have, um, the realm of what's believable uh, and finding drama that way.
0: It's also worth saying um, that the reason why you know the wrestling itself has become this kind of high pitched, you know, never ending scream of like nonsense and near falls is because and like you say like looking for the biggest reaction is because the stories aren't good enough or consistent enough to um create interesting story-driven matches and so the only equivalent is to sort of get to get to the fighting bit you know so it's like you know they have this sort of insultingly you know insultingly sort of weak storyline they get to the match itself and then i mean i think like the cesaro Alistair oh, Black match from earlier this year, I forget which for view, is a perfect example of that. In isolation, it was a wrestling match that was quite a lot of fun. But the storyline was Cesaro knocking on a door.
1: Well, I think, I think, yeah. I mean, I, I take your point, absolutely. I think where we've diverged in, in, perhaps even for me, perhaps as recently as the last month, um, is that, because I watched that match and I thought it was appalling um because of again just those tiny microcosmic details that in the past i was never picking up on or just went over my head or i didn't care about um and it's it's weird i've kind of reached a mental place where that sticks out like such a sore thumb and to be fair to the rest it's not just them like it's the production as well the production habits like i know if 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 it's a a three-way match or a four-way match and there's a spot where they're near a corner and the camera zooms in so you can't see the turnbuckle. I know someone's coming off the turnbuckle and you're going to get frog splash. So there's no drama when it happens because that's just what they do each and every single time. Um, and there's so many habits like that now in the production as well as in the wrestling uh, that it just it's mounted up to be this completely undigestible fatberg of
0: crap. Um <laughs> Merry Christmas. I mean, um, there, there's 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 a lot of what you say that I that I agree with and I and I think you know a lot of the matches that that you have disliked over the past 2 years are matches that I have also disliked.
1: I mean um, I should also say as well I think that there there have been um, over recent years uh, even now as I've reached this point um, I still think that there are matches that are story driven and, and tell great wrestling and exhibit great wrestling I, one of the reasons uh, you know I'm such a bit and I will always say this I'm, I'm a fan of Seth because I think his wrestling is amazing I don't think his wrestling is amazing because I'm a fan of Seth and there's an important difference between those two mental places and Dean Ambrose I thought was was uh, I can't really speak for stuff since he's left but um, was always uh, uh, I always found it very curious because as much as he had this reputation of a hardcore guy in WWE, he was always such an old school storyteller with his matches, you know, whether it's like AJ Styles, uh, a backlash, triple H at roadblock. And I think Roman Reigns, to be fair to him as well, is very much as proven over the years, perhaps a little bit more intermittently, Um, but nonetheless proven himself to be adept at older school storytelling. And as much as we may loathe the the old Brock Lesnar formula at this point, it is ultimately built out of older school storytelling. Um, And so I think about a match like Seth versus Brock at SummerSlam this year, I thought that was outstanding in terms of professional wrestling. Um, So there are, you know, there are still, it does still happen, but it just, it feels like it's now not even frequent enough to call an exception, frankly, to me. But that's just where I am.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, like I say I, I I don't disagree with large amounts of what you say. Um, I'm choosing to retain like some vestiges of hope just because I feel <laughs> like the alternative is just a bit too dark. <laughs> but but um <laughs> but yeah, certainly like you know this kind of match. Uh, I feel
1: like I need I feel like I need to post like an Emperor Palpatine gif. Well,
0: you, you order, like, order number. <laughs> like, all, <laughs> all pro wrestlers just start dying overnight. Execute order 66. Like, yeah, literally, is like, you know, Johnny Gargano walking along the seafront and someone pushes him off a pier, you know? Like, <laughs> 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 Vince just laughing on a chair, <laughs> destroying his own creation. <laughs> well, I mean, he's been doing that for years. Right, well, that is also true. Yeah, um... Uh, yeah, so where were we? Yeah, Diesel. Um, <laughs> Survived Series 95. Yeah, so, so yeah, no, it is very much um, a match that that I enjoy revisiting, um, a match that exhibits much of what was good about 1995 and about pro wrestling in general. Um, and of course, as two big Bret Hart fans. It's always a pleasure to see the great man at work. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll get to see perhaps our favourite hipster, uh Bret Hart match as we, we finish this series off. Indeed. Uh, so season's beatings uh, is is on, is on its way. Uh, as I w-
1: is, um, I think we ought to probably take a second to say this to, to anyone who may not follow us on social media, um, the end of the right side of the
0: pond shortly. Yeah, we're not entirely sure uh, exactly uh, what week uh, we will be drawing this to a close, but you know, we'll explain in some more detail uh, we've got a, a couple of special shows lined up for you so uh you know enjoy us while we're still here indeed um
1: well it sounds particularly ominous after we've been talking about pushing wrestlers off of piers
0: <laughs> it's like yeah it's okay it's like it's like you know it's like the right side of the pond's like sort of version of the joker movie or something <laughs> <laughs> um well, on that, that rather uh, harrowing note, uh, we will uh, we'll, we'll leave you for now. We've will got to finish this series off, and then we will be back to at some point uh, finish the pond off alongside our uh, our long lost co-workers. Um, if we can get a date that works, or, and them off, you know, off whatever uh, sofa they're on. Indeed, part
1: time Maz and. Shinobi, who isn't even frequent enough to be part-time anymore. No, he
0: is Batista. He's been like walking around in sunglasses for three years. <laughs> just so, you give know. me what I want. <laughs> yeah, it's like Joey, We never asked you to leave the ponds. <laughs> give me what I want. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we, it's like we keep finding great notes to finish on, but I think that is the very best so far. So <laughs> fr- fr- from the right side of the pods, we'll see you next week. Bye.